This is the Converge Podcast. We meet at 10.30 every Sunday morning at Heritage Baptist Church in the chapel. This is a group that is geared towards those who are young adults who want to follow Jesus and live the gospel life wherever the journey takes them. Maybe two or three people. 
Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time, place, space. I pray that you would clear our minds and fill them with your presence. Clear our hearts and fill them with your presence. I pray that we would be able to open your word today. We would be able to see what you've called us to as we orient our hearts rightly. I pray that all of us here today, Lord, would seek in our lives. To turn our hearts to you in worship and adoration and praise and thanksgiving. I pray this in your name. Amen. So, uh, today is a continuation of what we talked about last week. And what we talked about last week for those who weren't here is we, we talked through 1 Kings 8. And in 1 Kings 8, Solomon is praying his dedicatory prayer uh, of the temple. And one of the things that just stood out to me as I was reading through that passage was in his kind of introduction to the prayer, he talks about David's heart. And he mentions David's heart three times. And then in the prayer, he talks about the heart three different times. He talks about the, the, the faithful heart. Then he talks about the heart that's been afflicted, afflicted internally and externally. And then he talks about the repentant heart. And he says, Lord, when you consequence your people, if they repent and turn their heart to you, hear their prayers and answer their prayers. And then, in kind of the conclusion, the final farewell of his prayer, his benediction, or his um, last thoughts, he, he challenges the hearers to let God work on their hearts, to have a pliable heart. And he challenges them to let their hearts be responsive to him. And so in chapter 8, what I see is I see all of this heart language, something that's very interesting to me. And it's interesting to me in light of what we see in uh, chapter 11, 1 Kings chapter 11. And 1 Kings chapter 11 is something I've thought about frequently throughout my life um, uh, for various reasons. I, um, in this 1 Kings chapter 11, we see Solomon's heart being turned. And so for all of his focus on the heart, having a Davidic heart, having a repentant heart, in the midst of your affliction, looking to the Lord for the sustenance of your heart, repenting from your heart, and then having a heart that the Lord transforms, we see Solomon having a heart that was turned after foreign gods. And so my big idea today, you can say it two different ways. One, guard your heart on purpose. Or you can say, take measure of your heart's affections regularly. So guard your heart on purpose. Or take measure of your heart's affections regularly. Now, I don't want to pick on Solomon today, but I want to use him as an illustrative example, an illustration that will help us understand how to guard our hearts. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. What we can learn from his heart wanderings that will keep our hearts from similar wanderings. This reminds me of the song, Come Thou Fountain. 
verse 3 is a verse that has stood out to me in that song. And it says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, now like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And so I'm speaking on this because my heart is prone to wander. And I believe that your heart is prone to wander. And each of you here today have a lifetime ahead of you to guard your heart. Larissa and I, when we were fairly newlyweds, we have this date we like to do occasionally. We haven't done it in a while. But it's whenever we go to someone's wedding, this is usually a wedding gift we give to them, so if you get married someday, you might do this. We give you, uh, <clears throat> we get a Barnes Noble gift card, we get a Starbucks gift card, we get some coffee, and then we go to Barnes Noble. We pick out a book. But what we do is we pick out a book for the other person to read. And so it's kind of an agreed upon uh, commitment that we make to each other. So if I pick a book for her, she reads it. She picks a book for me, I read it. And what it does is it allows us as husband and wife to speak into each other about things that we know the other might need. And so uh, we did this once and she picked a book on money for me. And she knew that I needed to have a better kind of philosophy of money things uh, to lead our family better. Another time we did this date, uh, actually the first time we did this date, she picked a book titled Finishing Well. And so I, I read that book uh, because I told her I would. Uh, and we were fairly young in our marriage, and, and I don't know what made her think of that. I don't know if maybe there weren't any other good books out there, or maybe that was a really great book amidst a lot of great books. But whatever it was, she picked this, and, and I took that to heart because I want to finish well. I want to set the trajectory of my life for my family and for myself and for the Lord, and I want to run that race with endurance like Hebrews 12 challenges us to do. My dad, um, I've shared this story before, heard it, I apologize. My dad uh, had three sons. And so growing up, you know, we didn't do family devotions all the time. Usually when we did do family devotions, they were fairly boring. We, my parents would pray until we all fell asleep. Um, but one of the things that they would do is we would, family devotions consisted of the Proverbs. So my dad would read the proverb of the day. So he had three sons. And so he would look at us as he's reading through Proverbs 1, he would say, my sons, listen to my instruction. And, and chapter 2 says, my son, listen to my instruction. And chapter 3 says, my son, listen to my instruction. And 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, maybe 8. All of them start out or have some of that phrasing in there where he is speaking to his sons. And so my dad took that to heart, and he spoke to his three sons, saying, My sons, listen to my instruction. Get wisdom. Get insight. Bind it around your heart. Tie it to your life. And so that was in my mind throughout my life. And I was out to lunch with my dad um, and a friend of mine, Rory. 
man, Rory was a real bright guy. Um, and uh, Rory didn't have dad growing up. His dad took off when he was uh, a baby. And so he's always kind of looked for male figures to just give him some of the advice he had missed in life. And so Rory um, turned to my dad and said, Mr. Boris, what's the most important thing for a man to have? And I sat back in my chair because I was like, boom, wisdom, get wisdom. I know what you can say, drop the mic. And my dad sat back and he thought. And he said, you know, Solomon had a lot of wisdom, but his life didn't turn out very well. You know, in the end, his heart was turned after foreign gods. And he goes, so wisdom is important, but wisdom is not enough. He goes, the most important thing for a man to have is faithfulness. I was like, I've never heard you say that, Dad. Out of all these times that we've talked about Proverbs, I've read Proverbs, you know, he saw something that I hadn't yet saw. And so, what we're going to do today is we're going to be in 1 Kings 11, 1 through 9-ish. That's going to be kind of our, our cornerstone, and we're going to be jumping all over the place from there. And, and the purpose here is to look at the trajectory of Solomon and what set his trajectories. So something happened where Solomon, in 1 Kings 3, he, he honors the Lord. And the Lord says, I'll give you whatever you want. And he asks for a really good thing, wisdom. And the Lord says, because you've asked for wisdom, I will give you riches and honor. But somehow between 1 Kings 3 and 1 Kings 11, something changes in his life. And so I want to do today, what I want to do is I want to contrast his life, some of the heart pursuits and affections, with the life of Paul. So Solomon, his epitaph was, when he was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. That's his epitaph. And that's, that's tragic. Paul's epitaph, his kind of final words in the New Testament, are second, second Timothy uh, 4, 7 through 8, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept faith. And that is what I want my epitaph to read like. That here's Ben Forrest. He was poured out as a drink offering. And even though his time of departure has come, he has fought the good fight. He has finished the race. He has kept the faith. And therefore, there is a crown of righteousness which is laid up for him. The righteous judge will award to him on that day, not only to him, all those who love his appearing. And so as we look at Solomon, as we look at Paul, I, I think we're going to see different heart affections that have been cultivated throughout their lives. And so the first thing we're going to look at is, uh, if you turn to 1 Kings 11, 11, 2, 11.1-2. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter a marriage covenant with them, neither shall they with you, 
for surely they will turn your hearts after their gods. Now, there's a couple things here. But the first thing is this, this idea of this, you shall not enter a marriage with them. In Deuteronomy 17, we read of the rules that God has given to kings. When you enter the land, someday you're going to have a king. And in Deuteronomy 17, I think 2 or 7, it says, you shall not marry these foreign wives, these foreign women. But Solomon sees something very powerful here. That marriage can become a political alliance. And so for Solomon, we see him willing to bend God's rules, or outright break God's rules, for the sake of security and power. So the first point here is, is contrasting security and power in Solomon and security and power in Paul. And so in 1 Kings 4, 26, we see um, Solomon, and it says that Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. We see him going back to Egypt to buy these horses. We see him going back to Egypt in chapter 10 to get more chariots. And all of this is an attempt for him to solidify his kingdom. Now, there are right ways to do things and there are wrong ways to do things. And, and Solomon was king of Israel, so it was his job to shepherd the people of Israel, right? And so as a shepherd, his job was to protect them militaristically. His job was to protect their borders, to expand the borders of times. But God in Deuteronomy 17 says, do not go back and get a chariot from Egypt or horses. What does Solomon do? He does, because to him there is, there is more value in this power alliance, the marriage alliance, the, the, the militaristic strength, than there is in having faithfulness. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord God. As you compare Solomon to what happens later on in the Old Testament, his first tendency to go back to Egypt is a tendency that the other kings who are weaker replicate in greater amounts. Hezekiah turns to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. They turn then to Egypt. And all of these are ways that they're trying to say, I'm going to trust in these relationships rather than in my relationship with Yahweh. Paul does something different. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are being persecuted. But they refuse use their citizenship for the sake of their good. Instead, they were willing to suffer the humiliation of flogging and imprisonment. Now, I think that looks a little bit like what Jesus did, right? On the cross in, in Philippians 2. Jesus refused to say that equality with God was something to be grasped, but he took upon him the role of slave and the condemnation that came to crucifixion. So, Solomon, Paul, where do you get your security, and what do you do for power? Where do you 
You know, as I try to personalize this, I think about my heart and I ask, where do I find security? Where do you find security? I'll be honest, I find security in my job. I got a job, I got a family. At the end of this month, actually twice a month, they're gonna pay me a paycheck so I can take care of my family. And, and that's not bad, that's, that's good. But there are easy times to make that my source of refuge and my security. Like, Lord, if something goes wrong, as long as I have a paycheck, that's okay. And, and that's very normal, I think, for, for a dad and a husband. But I, I also want to hold that open-handed and say, Lord, if you ever lead me somewhere else where my paycheck isn't as big, or my, my 401k is not as strong, I trust in you. I want to be faithful, even when the, the winds of change are blowing in my heart. I had a friend who's a pastor of a good-sized church in uh, South Carolina, and he was, um, he was trying to just be open-handed. You know, when you're, he said, when you're in your 60s, because there's not a lot of things to give left to the Lord, in a sense. I have my career, I have my family, it's all gone, you know, I've kind of set myself up. And he said there was this church that called him that wanted him to move to uh, Minneapolis to be a pastor. And it was Minneapolis in 2020 that needed a pastor. And uh, he just said, Lord, I do not want to do that. Because I am secure and safe, my, my deacons love me, my elders love me, my church loves me in South Carolina. It's just easy. You know, but he, he just said, Lord, I will do this if you want. And in your life, how do you cultivate the heart posture that willingly holds up to the Lord what you think you find security? The next section of this passage. Sex. Solomon turns to these women. He turns to them first, I think, out of political alliances, but... Lust is certainly in his heart. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, this is verse 3. And his wives turned his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the ab abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Sex is physical, but it is also heartful. And so, for him, what might have started as just this kind of lust of his eyes became a heart that was led to the slaughter. So Proverbs talks about not walking down the path of the prostitute because you're being led like a pig to the slaughter. And so he had to guard his heart, but he had already made these decisions for these political alliances that then impacted the rest of his sins. Sin is related. It's this teeter-totter. When one goes up, it pushes the other around. And so if you are holding on to little sins, it's going to have a 
trajectory. So Solomon had this lust in his heart that impacted him, and it really ultimately turned his heart and then caused the kingdom to be stripped from his son. As we look at Paul, we see something different. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Verse 6, now is a concession, not a command. I say this. I wish that all were as myself, were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of to the unmarried, to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn passion. So we see the dispositions toward sex differently in Solomon and Paul. Solomon says, more, 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 more. I mean, unending wars. And Paul says, I can fight this. And this is good. Now, for most of you here, you're in college... This is a season that you were in where it asks for celibacy. Celibacy, holiness of heart and mind. You know, in our culture, most of you will someday find a spouse. And I'll tell you what, it's awesome to find a spouse. Especially when you find one that's good that I found. Um, I hope that all of you enjoy what the Lord has given you in the future. But now is the time to set up heart disciplines. Because where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. But where your heart is, there goes your future. And so what you're going to be cultivating now is going to have implications in a marriage. Now, I don't want to shame the struggle and the fight against lust. Romans says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there's also an expectation towards the fight for holiness. And so I would challenge you to measure the disposition of your heart. Based on your measure, set your trajectory rightly and wisely. Rightly equals worshipful and to a greater beauty. So as you set the trajectory of your heart, set it upon something better. Wisely. Use what the Lord has given you to fight. And the Lord has given you a body here of men and women who can encourage you. He's given you different types of accountability depending on the challenges or the struggles. And so rightfully and wisely, so rightfully is worshipfully, and wisely is using the resources at your disposal. Piper, in a, in a book he writes, uh, is telling the story of a pastor who struggled with pornography addiction for a long time. And this pastor had wrestled with it for years and years and years. And he writes this, that nothing worked in his fight against this sin. Until one day he realized that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then this pastor writes, the thought hit me like a bell rung in a dark, silent hall. So far, None of the scary negative arguments against lust had succeeded in keeping me from it. And I think here it's a valuable 
tangent, that, that shame is not the best tool to fight against lust. Guilt is not the best tool to fight against lust. There's two kinds of guilt in Scripture. There's the kind that leads you to repentance, and that's good. But then there's a the kind of guilt that is used as a bludgeon by Satan to keep you in chains when you've been set free, according to Romans 8, 2 and 3. So he said that none of the scary tactics worked. But here, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Here was a description of what I've been missing as I continued to harbor lust. I was limiting my own intimacy with God. The love he offers is so transcendent and possessing that it requires our faculties to be purified and cleansed before we can possibly contain it. Could he, Jesus, in fact, substitute another thirst, another hunger for the one I had never filled in lust? Would the living water somehow quench this thirst? And that was the gamble of faith. When one of our kids was little, they would um, have some nightmares. And it always made me chuckle at what could cause nightmares among kids. And <laughs> uh, one time, a kid not to be named, because they asked recently as they get older not to be named, <laughs> comes in and goes, Madam Blueberry from Veggie Tales. <laughs> like, really? That's what you're scared of? <laughs> and so then, like, we're at this, like, midnight phase, 2 a.m. phase, and I'm trying to teach her this lesson of, like, if you go to sleep thinking about Madam Blueberry, you're going to think about Madam Blueberry. But if you go to sleep not wanting to think about Madam Blueberry, and instead, think about all of the friends that you have and all of the things the Lord has blessed you with. Thanking Him for the good in your life. What's going to happen is you're going to have this brighter vision of something worthy and worthwhile. And all of a sudden, you will forget about Madame Blueberry. And that is what this pastor is saying in this battle against lust. Is he's saying that if you see Jesus in his beauty and his worthiness and his glory, it will make the pale limitations lesser so that you truly recognize that this is a false promise of satisfaction. It is temporary and it is fleeting, but this is abundant. Now, it is so easy to stand up here and, in a sense, kind of put this before you and say that this is what it looks like. Just, just see Jesus in his beauty. Doing that every day, all day, as you fight against lust, is a lot harder. But that's where worship comes in. That's where friends come in. That's where podcasts come in. All of those things that, that you can turn your heart. And in that same chapter towards the end where Piper's writing, he says, I often have men confess a sin to me. And they say, but pastor, I, I have fought. He said, well, how long? Five minutes? Or did you fight for 24 hours on your knees? Did you fight for 48 hours in fasting? And, and I don't want to make this sound like it's an impossible battle between 24 hours of prayer or 48 hours of fasting. That sounds like a lot. But he's saying, like, did you fight for just a second and then go, well, I fought. I didn't win. It didn't work. Let's give in. No, you fight and fight and fight. And Solomon did not fight. But Paul fought. 
there's something to be said about where they ended up in their life. Number three, and the third thing that I see different between the two is in their worship. In 4 through 8, we just read, Solomon turned his worship to these other gods. And with his worship came his heart. G.K. Beale wrote a book called We Become What We Worship. And it's, it's a worthy read if anybody wants to read it, or it's a worthy podcast to download because he's interviewed on several podcasts about it. And he says, if you worship false idols, you become deaf, dumb, and blind like these false idols. And, and for you know, the Old Testament context, we always think of these as like these wooden stone things. But for us, when we worship things that are just things, we become deaf, dumb, and blind like our our plastic cars or our whatevers. We become like we worship, what we worship. And so for Solomon, what we see in his worship is we see him starting well in 1 Kings 3.3. But we see him ending poorly in 1 Kings 11. In Paul, we see in Acts 7 that Paul, Saul, was holding the cloaks for the men who were stoning Stephen. And then in Acts 9, Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Solomon started well but ended poor. Paul started poor but ended well. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And so to bring that to a point here, you, in this room, you can start well and end poorly. You, in this room, can start poorly and end well. So wherever you are right now, it can get better or it can get worse. And that is going to be contingent on your heart. Whether your heart is like David's heart according to first. Kings 8, where David was set up as the heart that was to be encouraged and recognized as worthy. And it said that David, it was in his heart to build the temple. And he said three times, the Lord commends him through the mouth of Solomon, that David was commended because he desired to build the temple. And so what was in his heart, even though we know David's great and great sin, there's something that the Lord still commends is in Acts 13, David is commended to being a man after God's own heart, even though Acts can see what happened after all of his sin. Number four. Their views between money. Solomon in 4.22. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep besides beer, gazelle, robots, and fatted cattle. In 10.14, we read how much money he had. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. 
Besides that, which came from the explorers and from the business and the merchants from all the kings of the West. And going on, it says that Solomon made silver like worthless metal. It was so prevalent. So Solomon had great, vast amounts of money. Now, the Lord had blessed that. The Lord had said, because you have asked for wisdom, I will give you riches and honor. So this was a blessing of the Lord. And you know, so I don't want to say that him being wealthy was sinful. But I, I think there is certainly going to be a relation between the excess of money and his excesses in other aspects of his life, ultimately in excess of wives and a heart that turns. We see Paul's view, Philippians 4, 11. Number three, 
did you worship? And what happens to your heart because of what you worship? I am going to close in prayer. And I have several verses that I'm going to read as I pray. And so I encourage you just to close your eyes and and think about these scriptures, but pray these scriptures and I'm praying for you. Um, for Samuel 67, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks in the outward appearance, but the Lord looks in the heart. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would look upon each heart here. And in your grace, I pray that you would show us where our heart is, what our heart is attached to, what affections our heart longs for. And I pray that as you show us that, Lord, we would grow in gracious adoration and appreciation for the conviction of your spirit. And I pray that as you look upon our hearts, you would see our desire. Regardless of our temptations and our sins and our proclivities, that you would see our desire to lift up holy hands and worship to you. And for every heart that is battling supremacy of desires, disordered loves or ordered loves, I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to love rightly. Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord God, I pray for my heart, that what I think about, the meditations of my heart, I pray that they would be acceptable to you. I pray that you would train my heart to meditate well on the truths and the beauty and the glories of Jesus. I pray this for all of these friends here. Psalm 26, 2. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart in my mind. Lord, I pray that you would test my heart in my mind. And that as you do, Lord, I would come up measured in obedience. However that testing goes, whether it's, it's a challenge to give up security or what I think I find security in, a challenge to give up Temptations or sins which I have clung to so closely. Lord, I pray that I would measure up to your expectation. And wherever I fall short, Lord Jesus, I pray you would make the lacking. That you would bring me up in maturation and obedience and faithfulness. Psalm 119. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your Lord Jesus, I pray that every person here would seek you with their heart. That their hearts, Lord God, would be true to you. That they would be playing the long game of life, this journey that John Bunyan describes. I pray that they would set their mind and their hearts on the Lord of the celestial sea. And that they would seek you. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me. You will seek me with all your heart. And Lord, I pray that it's true. That we will seek you. And 
And as we seek, we will find. And Jesus, I ask that you grow in your beauty in our hearts so that we recognize the comparative imitations of the things that this world has to offer. Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Lord, I ask that you would continue to operate on our hearts. Continue to work and soften and make malleable the hearts that we have been given in Jesus as we have been justified by faith. But I pray we would not just rest on would not rest, we would seek to daily conform our hearts to you. But in that confirmation, Lord God, I pray that we would rest in you and upon what you have done and accomplished. Let us wrestle with the, the pursuit of sanctification, but let us rest or wrestle with rest with you because you are the one. Joel 2 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jesus, for all of those who are wrestling with sin and temptation, I pray that you would help them return to you, that you would give grace upon grace as they that you would fill their cup overflowing with your gracious and merciful, steadfast love. And Lord, I pray that we would love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. I pray this in your name. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you would like to get plugged into a small group, just text HB Converge to 81010 and you will get the text reminders for all the small groups. If you have any questions, just respond to one of those text reminders and it will go to our leadership team and they will be able to respond to you directly.